0: Thank you, Jacob, for playing for us this morning. <clears throat> As we open to Matthew chapter 5, I want to invite you to find verse uh, verse 21. That'll be, that will be our text this morning. And The title of the message, the sermon this morning is Righteous Living and Grave Danger. Righteous Living and Grave Danger. Let me pray for us before we begin. Father, as we open your word, give us eyes to see its truth. Give us minds to comprehend the truth of your word and give us hearts to love the truth of your word, Father. Now I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. it's no secret that the human condition is depraved, that we are sinful. We hear stories of serial murderers that are awful. And if you take any time to read or to listen to the details of those stories, it's almost unbearable. In fact, it's so awful that it affects us deep to the core if you hear of these stories. We can think of how wicked some of the names, some of the men are of the names that I'll just mention a few. Ted Bundy would be one. Maybe you remember his name or John Wayne Gacy. Maybe you remember his name, who upon his capture, 33 bodies were found from underneath the cavity of his home um, of children that he had abducted. Charles Manson, these names strike terror. In the hearts of so many, especially in the hearts of the families of those who were close to those victimized. But what we know about murder is that murder is harsh. It's a sinful problem in the world. It, it ends life so abruptly. And everywhere we turn, it seems like murder is kind of broadcasted across the airways if it's not in the news for crime that's happening it's on tv shows that we see and it's kind of glamorized in a sense new orleans in in our in our state new orleans ranks second in the country for the highest murder rate per capita annually 41 for every 100,000 people annually baton rouge is 10 murders per 100,000 people in the city per capita. It's still among the top 25. The murder rate in Louisiana is two times higher than the national average. But murder is not anything that's new, right? Murder's been around since the beginning of the Bible when Cain slew Abel, his brother. We could read through the biblical account and we can see that there are many murders throughout the Bible, many murderers that are recorded in Scripture, even those who find themselves in the lineage of Christ, such as King David was a murderer. As we consider God's Word this morning, this is the topic that we're considering, murder and reconciliation. This is what Jesus addresses in verse 21. So if you found your place in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21... I want to invite you to follow along as I read. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, 'You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. In verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus really sets the stage for the remaining portion of the Sermon on the Mount when he says that we are to have exceeding righteousness. Chapter 5 verse 24, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And now Jesus goes on to give us six illustrations of what exceeding righteousness looks like. How we're to apply this practically into our lives. So last week we noted Jesus' call of surpassing righteousness for his followers. It's a call, as John Stott says, a call to deep obedience. One writer defines this kingdom of heaven, being able to enter the kingdom of heaven as the rule and the reign of God in your heart. I think that's a good definition because it sums up what it means to be part of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus promotes the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus promotes in the Sermon on the Mount and through the Sermon on the Mount exactly what God requires. That is, he requires a purity of heart. He requires a deep obedience that moves Out of, from inside of us into the world, into our actions. So this comes from the internal formation of our character as we image Christ to the world. This as we grow in the beatitude kind of life, right? Verses 2 through 11 or 2 through 10, these beatitudes that Jesus lists. But I just want to make one note before we look into the text. And it's this, that we're not talking about works-based salvation this morning. We're not talking about earning our way into heaven. That is not what we are talking about this morning. What we're talking about this morning is the culpability of believers in pursuing the righteous life. The responsibility that you and I have, believer, as God's children, as followers of Christ, as disciples of Christ... To walk in righteousness, pursuing purity of the truth. And so we, as God's children, have this great confidence that God, through Christ, has made us righteous and therefore grants us entrance into his kingdom. But Christ's imputed righteousness doesn't give us a license for sinful living. And so there remains a balance between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility where we're actively engaged in the process of pursuing righteousness as the Holy Spirit leads us. The Holy Spirit works in our lives to transform us. And as God's word is applied into our lives and, and it transforms us from the inside out so that the heart then affects the actions that we live. And so this is a matter primarily of one's heart. So this is what Jesus is teaching when he calls his followers to a life of surpassing righteousness. He's teaching us to live with a heart of purity. He's calling us to see the difference between carrying out the letter of the law and carrying out the spirit of the law. And so this morning, I want us to see as believers... That believers grow as peacemakers when we guard our hearts from anger and seek opportunities for reconciliation. Believers grow as peacemakers when we guard our hearts from anger and seek opportunities for reconciliation. For this is what Jesus is calling us to in this passage this morning. And so the six illustrations of how surpassing righteousness applies practically follow from verses 21 Through verse 48, but first, in verses 21 through 26, Jesus looks at anger, and he looks at murder, and he looks at reconciliation. And so first, in verses 21 and 22, we see the danger of anger. The first illustration of surpassing righteousness is the sixth commandment. And he says it in verse 21, right? Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. Now, Jesus is quoting from Exodus here, and he's quoting from the Old Testament. And those scribes and Pharisees who would have heard, and the disciples certainly would understand and know that Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament law. Now, don't forget, previously, last week, we saw that Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. And so Jesus claims that the law actually has its fulfillment. It finds its its full place in him. And so now Jesus is saying that he's come to fulfill the law. And he's giving us a right understanding of what the law speaks. And so Christ here is exercising his supremacy. For in verse 21, he says, you have heard that it was said of old. In verse 22, he begins by saying what? But I say to you. In other words, here's how you, you've been interpreting the law. Here's what you've understood it to mean. But, but listen to what I say. Hear what I say to you. This is what it truly means. And so we see the second. The first theme is Christ, his supremacy in these illustrations. Christ shows his supremacy. Every illustration, There's, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. And then secondly, it's the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And so we know that murder is wrong, right? Murder is wrong. It's wrong. Why? Because it, it takes the life of a human being who's created in the image of God. Murder, then, is actually an assault on the life of God and or the image of God. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, they understood this. And they held a very rigid interpretation of God's law, even like us this morning. Their line of thinking was, I've not killed anyone, check, therefore I'm a righteous person. I'm righteous according to God's law, I've not shed anyone's blood. But this is the very letter of the law that Jesus is challenging. The spirit of the law speaks to more than the physical act of murder. You see what the Pharisees and the scribes had done is they had reduced the law to a manageable interpretation so that they would feel righteous as they carried it out. They thought by not committing physical murder, they were safe from God's judgment. But in verse 22, Jesus gets right to the point when he equates anger with murder. Look at what he says in verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. This is the exact same grammatical construction that we see in verse 1. Look, uh, 21. Look at verse 21. You've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. You see what Jesus is saying here? He's equating anger within the heart of man to physical murder. Jesus is showing, he's speaking about, about these relationships within the covenant community of God's people. And so in verse 22, he says, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. In other words, the same sentence is pronounced for the murderer. As is pronounced for the one who is angry with his brother. So if you've never shed blood, Jesus is saying anger still makes you guilty before God. What is what does Jesus mean by this word angry? Angry. I'm sure we're sitting here thinking surely, surely you're not saying that my anger with somebody else is the same as murder, right? I mean, we think about those guys like like Ted Bundy, we think about those guys like um, Charles Manson, thank you. yeah, we think about these guys that i'm I mentioned earlier, and these these guys in our mind, they're set apart, right. I mean, they are wicked. They are the wicked of the wicked. They've done evil, atrocious things. But hear what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying here in verse 22 that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. And then he goes on to say whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And so Jesus means here that angry is it's this seething fury which boils over and lashes out. And when left unchecked, this anger, it seeks to hurt others. The way it happens most often, if not physically, is with our words. And so that's why Jesus says whoever insults his brother, he uses this term raka, meaning you good for nothing. It's an Aramaic term of contempt. And when in anger, we call someone an idiot. It's an insult that goes straight to his or her intelligence. And this is what Jesus is saying. It's the same as calling someone a a dimwit or a numbskull in our context. They're calculated words resulting in shame and resulting in humiliation. And what they are, are intended death blows to the person. And so Jesus takes these insults seriously. And he goes on to say, not only if you, if you insult a brother, will you be liable to the council? But he says, if you say you fool, which is the word more, it's where we get our term moron from in the English language. But it's an Aramaic term of insult. If there's a distinction between raka and more, raka insults the head, stupid idiot where moray attacks the character and identity. It's more like calling someone a loser, right? And this is more than just name calling. Hear the gravity of what Christ, I mean, we sit here this morning and might even be tempted to think, well, are you serious? Is this really the text that we're looking at this morning? But yes, this is what Jesus is saying. And the reason is because it, it goes to the heart, It goes deep within us, and it reflects the hard attitude within the believer. And so those who are transformed by the grace of Christ don't think of themselves as more highly than they ought, as more superior than others. We're not ones with the entitled mentality. Instead, as the Beatitudes say, we're poor in spirit. We mourn over our sin. We're meek. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're merciful toward others, not not dropping insults on them. We're peacemakers. So this is the way of kingdom living. And so Raka. Raka is, is an insult toward the head, toward the intelligence. But Moray attacks the character and the identity. It lays a charge against the sister, which calls to question her salvation. It even has to do with bringing a charge against a brother or sister that condemns them to hell. To which we would say, and who are you the judge in that sense? sense?" So, Raka and More represent an attitude of our hearts. The emotion of anger is not an inherently bad thing always, but when it goes to the extent where Jesus is confronting here, it's a terrible thing. And it's that which slays a brother and sister. And so Jesus is talking about within the covenant community, within the body. I can think about our own children and how they call one another names when they get angry at each other. In fact, this was a family devotion that we were able to sit down and talk through uh, earlier this week before they left to go out of town. I said, y'all aren't going to be here Sunday, so I'm going to share the sermon with you now. And so we talked through uh, the name calling, but. Really, if you notice in children, when they get angry, the first thing they do is either hit or call names, right? I mean, that's, that's instinctive within us. They take out this aggression, this anger, in a way that's violent, in a way that's intended to inflict harm and hurt, pain. And this is what Jesus is getting at here. This ought not be the case within the body of Christ. This ought not be how believers should act even toward the world. So the anger, the emotion of anger is not inherently a bad thing, but it's a dangerous emotion. And it's one that we must keep under check. I like how one commentator talked about anger as an indicator. It's like a sign. It indicates to us that there's pain, there's danger, there's fear. And so it's this sign that's saying, look out, something's going on when we experience anger. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And this is why James in James 1.19 says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So anger, then, can be like a danger sign pointing with this flashing arrow saying, danger ahead, danger ahead. So personally, when I I feel a flash of anger, I need to say, what's the danger? And so when we view our anger, then, as an indicator of danger, it can actually be used and serve as a God-given gift to us. Have you ever met an angry person? One who seems to be angry all the time, one who seems to just cut people off in conversation, and one seems to rub everyone wrong. They just seem to be angry internally, deep down. This is what anger does when it's left unchecked. It makes us miserable. It wreaks havoc within our soul. It it roughs our spirit up. It's like sandpaper in the believer's life. It agitates us. And so when anger is allowed to seep, it becomes part of our fabric as a person. It becomes a weak spot in our lives. And when anger goes unchecked, it continues to mound up in us, doesn't it? You know what I'm talking about. Satan knows where our weak spots are. Hear me on this. He knows how to attack us. Remember Ephesians 6 in the spiritual armor passage. Satan isn't all-knowing, so he doesn't know our thoughts. But he studied humanity. He studied humanity since the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. And whatever inroad you give Satan, whether it be anger, or lust, or pride, or arrogance, or vengeance, or hatred, or etc., he will take that road in your life and work through it. This is why Paul says in chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 27, When he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down your anger. And then he says, and give no opportunity to the devil. You see, anger can be a painful weapon that hurts. That actually murders others, Jesus says. So we need to recognize the danger of anger. anger. We need to see it as a warning sign and prayerfully consider what we say and, and how we think about others. The warning is clear. Jesus is saying, don't think you're safe from hell simply because we've not shed blood. Jesus says we're guilty enough to receive the judgment of hell if we've harbored anger and contempt in our hearts toward a brother or sister. And so realize, realize here that Jesus' radical demand of righteousness is meant to drive us to him for grace. Not to make us despair. But to drive us to him for grace. Because all of us in this room. We are condemned before God. Because we have harbored this anger. In our own hearts toward another. And what Jesus is saying is we have slayed others. We have assassinated their character. We have assassinated their identity. We have assassinated their Intellect. We've assassinated them as a person. And so, foundationally, hear this. Foundationally, this deals with our hearts before God, and it deals with living out relationships with others. And so, let me ask you this morning: Has Christ radically? Has Christ's radical righteousness truly penetrated our relationships within the body with others? What's the work that God is still doing in your life? Is anger something that needs to be put in check? Philippians 4.8, Paul writes, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about it. These things, right? Set our minds upon the things of God so that we might walk righteously and live righteously. Well, how do we respond in the midst of anger? Jesus gives us two illustrations in verses 23 through 26. And so we see not only the danger of anger, but we see the urgency of reconciliation that Jesus speaks to in verses 23 through 26. Jesus gives us two illustrations of instant reconciliation. Look at verses 23 and 24. He says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, just so that we're clear, this doesn't refer to some... Unreasonable grudge, but to a legitimate grievance, one of the reasons that I read romans twelve uh, eighteen before we began this morning or during our uh, our prayer time and praying for our own hearts and minds that is as, as 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 much as possible that we would be at peace with one another with all men and so there the, this doesn't speak to some unreasonable grudge, it speaks to the grievance though that that we might That we might encounter in daily life. And so this means that we need to seek out restitution, reconciliation. So here's the picture. The picture is one where a worshiper is presenting a sacrifice before the altar of God. In the Old Testament, this is before Christ has died on the cross. So as he's saying, this is under the Old Testament sacrificial system. And the picture he's giving them is one that they would comprehend and understand. So the worshippers there at the temple offering his sacrifice before God for the forgiveness of his sins and repenting of his sin. And there he remembers that he or she has an offended brother or sister. What's Jesus's instruction? Leave your gift there, right? and go and make things right go and be reconciled and then come back and then worship me but hear the urgency of Jesus's words it's unmistakable Jesus is speaking at the north at the northern end of the sea of Galilee temple sacrifices are made in Jerusalem and so he's speaking to the galileans and Jerusalem is some 80 miles away a 3-day journey around Samaria to get there. And so he's telling people who reside in Galilee, if you're all the way over there in Jerusalem, some 80 miles away, three-day journey by foot or by, by animal, by animal, uh, if, if you're over there, you're all the way there, you're about to offer your sacrifice, maybe your hand is even on the animal's head before the sacrifice happens, and you think about someone that you have a grievance against or that has one against you. Stop. Leave your sacrifice there. Travel those 80 miles and go back. Make things right and then come back and offer your sacrifice. That's how important reconciliation is to God. That's how important unity among the body of Christ is to God. Why is it so important? Well, partly because as we're coming to worship God we're seeking God's forgiveness through repentance and through sacrifice we come today offering a sacrifice of praise before the Lord right we bring our lives before God to say we worship you we adore you we we give you everything all of us for to to you we're all yours this is our this is our offering and our sacrifice before the Lord But if we're if we're coming and part of what we're doing is seeking God's forgiveness through repentance and sacrifice. How can we worship God if we've not truly sought the forgiveness of one that we have knowingly wronged? Maybe there's somebody that's popping into our mind even now. If I remember that, that I've said or done something to cause a brother to stumble or a sister to stumble or or perhaps I'm harboring bitterness or or hurtful thoughts toward another then I must immediately, according to Christ, seek reconciliation with that person. If I know there's unconfessed sin in my heart and I don't deal with that sin, then Jesus is saying my worship is pointless. Our interaction with others then directly affects our relationship and our worship with God. And so Jesus is saying our worship is pointless if we're at odds with brothers and sisters in Christ. He gives a second illustration of this in verses 25 and 26, where he says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. This second illustration is a legal example. And he wants to drive home the point of urgency in our reconciliation. He's saying when we have sinned against another and we're guilty of that charge, it's better to settle as soon as possible for this penalty for our offense. As a general principle, an out-of-court settlement is usually less severe than the one issued in court. And so oftentimes, a jail sentence then meant that person would remain in jail for the rest of their life because they had no way to pay or to work off the debt that they owed. The point is, when we have sinned against a brother or sinned against a sister, we should be quick to seek reconciliation, to seek forgiveness, to make restitution for the sin that we have committed against them. This is the urgency. Jesus is saying, if you've harmed someone, it's your responsibility to go and to be reconciled. If you have something against a brother or sister, you go and be reconciled to them. If there's a broken relationship, whose responsibility is it to initiate reconciliation? Is it theirs? No, it's yours. It's mine. It doesn't matter whether we did it or we were the ones who were offended. It's our responsibility. This is hard, isn't it? It's hard to go and to seek reconciliation with someone even maybe who has offended you. But it's hard to humbly come before others when we've offended them. When we've done them wrong and to humbly say, I'm sorry, I've done you wrong. Please forgive me because it makes us vulnerable. And in our society, our culture, no one wants to admit they're wrong. Maybe mistaken, but they did not, they did not do wrong. And so again, we see this countercultural view of living as a kingdom citizen of God. It's the wrong view to say that it's always someone else's responsibility. It's our responsibility to seek instant reconciliation, Jesus is saying. So reconciliation should actually then be part of our weekly routine, should it not? Jesus is saying before you can bring your offering of worship to me, seek to be reconciled with your brother or sister. And so understanding then who we are in Christ, I think, makes it easier for the believer to humbly approach someone that we've hurt seeking their forgiveness. Jesus says the beatitude life is one who seeks to be merciful, one who seeks to be pure in heart, one who seeks to be a peacemaker. This is as we've studied recently in Galatians chapter 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from their flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up, right? So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those Who are of the household of faith. Hear Jesus' words here. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there. Go and first be reconciled to your brother. Right? In verse 25 he says, come to terms quickly with your accuser. The one who has accused you. I wonder if there are any here this morning who've sinned against a brother or sister and the Lord has used this time this morning to bring it to your mind. I wonder if anyone here this morning is struggling with anger and realize that it's eating you alive inside. You realize that you can't overcome it in your own strength. I invite you to turn to Christ and look to Christ, who is the one who can give you strength to overcome the anger within Maybe this morning you're struggling with a particular sin that you've committed against a brother. Maybe it's slander or anger that's progressed from emotion even to verbal attacks. Maybe you're harboring bitterness or a grudge that needs to be confronted and dealt with this morning. If God has brought a particular sin to your mind that you need to deal with, I want to encourage you, don't hesitate to confess that before the Lord this morning and seek to make it right with the one that you've offended or the one who has offended you. Jesus challenges us this morning from Scripture that we as believers are to grow as peacemakers And we will grow as peacemakers when we guard our hearts from anger and seek opportunities for reconciliation. And so Jesus is challenging us not to simply look at the letter of the law, but look at the heart of the matter. Within the heart. How are we responding to others? What's our relationship like with God and with others? Are we seeking out reconciliation? Are we seeking to be in right relationship, walking in unity as one body, walking in unity with brothers and sisters? Is this our desire as a church, as a believer, as a community of faith? I pray that it is. But if it's not this morning, I pray that you will take some time to confess your sin before the Lord, to seek his forgiveness, and then go to those people that maybe God has laid on your mind and to seek restitution, reconciliation. Let us pray this morning. Father. We thank you for Christ, our Savior, and his words to us that show us how seriously the anger within our own hearts can be, how serious the anger within our own hearts can be. And Father, we pray that you would help us to guard against this anger, that you would help us to seek to walk in truth and in light, that we would be salt and light in the midst of the earth, Father, that the beatitudes would become, growingly, increasingly more present in our lives as we walk by Your Spirit and seek to follow You. Guard us, Father, from temptation. Keep us from evil, O Lord. Teach us to walk in Your ways for Your glory and for the good of Your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand this?